In this Talking Heads episode, Evan and I will be talking to the father of SIP, Jonathan Rosenberg. Welcome to Talking Heads. Hello, Evan. What's on your mind today? Well, it's cold, miserable, dank, and dreary, snowy here in Boston, so welcome to win Another normal day or typical day in Boston. Why do you live there? I really question that. I think I need to move to sunny uh, Denver, much, much better climate. Yes, yes. You should, you should come on over. We could talk more often. That'll be great. No, no. Maybe you should go Arizona. Arizona's got more sunshine. Anywhere but here. Anywhere but here. Speaking of travel, uh, Thanksgiving... Uh, what are your plans for Thanksgiving? Well, I'll start by eating uh, and then slipping into a turkey-induced coma and gradually recovering uh, probably on the couch for the rest of the day. That's my... Are you are you a Thanksgiving football person or are you a Thanksgiving Black Friday person? I am a... Um, every day is, is uh, Black Friday for me, but in terms of uh, Thanksgiving Day, the dog show. Have you ever watched the Westminster Dog Show? What a fantastic event. I mean, I really... <laughs> I really like to, to check out all the varieties of dogs and sort of imagine owning a uh, Shih Tzu or, or some other bizarre uh, a breed. So that's what I enjoy doing. You know, ever since that movie, Best of Breed, I can't, I can't take any type of dog show seriously. It's just uh, uh, my, my favorite characters in the, in the Best of Breed movie were the couple that met in Starbucks, but it was two different Starbucks across the street from each other, and they kept on having eye contact. I, that sounds like one of my dating experiences, actually. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's true, true to life, true to life. Well, I'm going to go to Santa Cruz, California for Thanksgiving, and I'm going to have turkey over there because I hear turkey is better in Santa Cruz. Uh, Santa Cruz, gorgeous destination, home of, of SCO Unix for you tech geeks. And... Uh, yeah, I, I, I admire that. I, I I wish I were with you. I'm surprised you mentioned Sco Unix. You, you know that Sco Unix and Plantronics are like uh, near near uh, neighbors. Uh, you know, Sco's gone obviously, but but uh, Plantronics is now based uh, just just down the, the few doors from where Sco was. You come up with the the most um, useless trivia. It's just amazing. Well, well done. It is an art. It is something I work very hard at. So, uh, so no, no plans for th no travel plans for you for Thanksgiving. No, like I said, I'll be uh, on the couch, probably horizontal much of the day. I can't, I can't figure out why people still go Black Friday shopping in person because it seems like all the deals are online. Well, I, I try to avoid the Walmart trampede that, uh, that that you see on the nightly news. So I think it's quite dangerous to go shopping on Black Friday. You never know. It's dangerous for small little people. It's not dangerous for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna save my uh, my budget for uh, Amazon's equivalent of Black Friday, which is what Monday is that Monday. When uh, Cyber Monday, yeah. Cyber Monday, yeah. I'm saving my dollars for Cyber Monday. All right, well, well, let's go ahead and bring on our guest. So, Evan, today we're going to be talking with Jonathan Rosenberg, industry legend. You, you know Jonathan, don't you? He is indeed a legend, and uh, everyone in the industry has really followed Jonathan's career, so it's a delight to actually spend some quality time today. So, Jonathan, how are you doing today? I am doing outstanding, Dave. Outstanding. Are you are you at at uh, Rosenberg World headquarters in New York? <laughs> I am. It's uh, actually in New Jersey, although many consider it a suburb of New York, but that's fine. Yes, uh, that, that is where I am today. 
Well, we got, I don't know, I don't know even where to start. We have so many things to talk to you about today. Well, actually, I always think it's good to start from the beginning, at least with your career, Jonathan. And always curious, you know, how you got into the industry and sort of the origin story, as it were. Tell us more about uh, MIT and your, your vision and, and uh, experience at MIT. What, what sort of shaped you and drove you to uh, get into this industry uh, onwards uh, from there to Bell Labs and Lucent and the rest is history. You know, like a lot of things, it's a lot of sort of luck and coincidence. I, I did my master's thesis at MIT as, a, as an, in, an internship program with Bell Labs, which was very prestigious. And when I got accepted to the program, of course, I went to Bell Labs and it sort of just happened, not really even by choice of me. I sort of was like, got assigned almost this master's project on video compression um, I actually did my master's thesis on implementing this H.263 video codec in, in DSP code. Uh, interestingly, it's a, it was a DSP chip made by the company, which is now 8x8. Packet 8. Yes, this was back. Actually, they had a different name even, I think, before Packet 8. Um, that's uh, ancient history. Anyway, um, so I went to work for Bell Labs after I graduated. I had decided, by the way, that this video thing was never going anywhere. It was so awful. It, it, you know, my first job was like making a, a video phone for AT&T at a 56 kilobit per second modem. It was just, it was just atrocious, right? So I left the video industry and I sort of, again, was lucky enough to, to go back to one of my uh, summer jobs I had at Bell Labs with a networking group that was doing ATM networking. So I have to admit, yes, I worked on ATM networking for a little while, but I didn't, didn't like it overly much. And this was just the beginning when the internet was getting started and I kind of wanted to do more internet things. And this is where the greatest coincidence happened and how it all got started is um, my boss at Bell Labs wanted me to do a PhD because everyone at Bell Labs had a PhD. So I applied to Columbia University and I got in, they had like remote, you know, adult learner program. Uh, and I wandered around for topics for a while. And then a new faculty joined Columbia, this guy, Henning Schulz Rennie. And he was apparently doing some interesting stuff in the internet technologies. And he was doing voice, which, you know, was related to my area of expertise. So I approached him and, we hit it off and uh, I joined him as his first PhD student. And he said to me, hey, I'm working on this uh, SIP thing. Why don't you go take a look at that and start working on it? And that was sort of the, the beginning uh, of, the, of the history of the thing. It was that very for fortunate uh, connection between myself and Henning. Wow, that's, that's a really interesting. I, I had no idea the connection went so far back. Yeah. What do you think about Bell Labs and, and the future of, of R&D in this space? I mean, do you think that was a point in history that was unique and never to come back? Or do you think we'll see a renaissance in, in R&D and, you know, a partnership between public and private? And uh, what's your take on Bell Labs uh, for, from that perspective? Uh, it's kind of a shame, really. I mean, I mean, it was like a... It's like an icon of American research and technology and the transistor, transistor was invented there and Unix operating system and all kinds of things that are still foundational today. Um, and it's obviously, you know, long gone really. Um, and, and it's a lesson that these things only work for monopoly businesses is really you have to be effectively a monopoly to afford the kind of investment it takes to have a research arm like this that may never pay off at enormous uh, expense to the business. And so, Probably Microsoft Research is the last remaining bastion of such a thing, again, from a company which is, you know, not officially uh, in any way, of course, but like nearly about as close as you can get these days without getting in trouble with the government. Uh, maybe Google, and they have small research groups. But uh, but, uh, but to answer your question, like, no, I think we are past the heyday. It's just 
in today's market of profit and revenue and growth and uh, wanting to see return on these investments, it's really hard for companies to invest in things that are purely academic in nature. And that's really left to universities, unfortunately. Now, now when, when you did that SIP work, and, you know, obviously you're, you're very well known to be uh, one of the authors of the SIP standard. Um, was that at Bell Labs? That, that must have been later, right? Yeah. No, it was while I was at Bell Labs. It was, I ended up, it was my work job was a researcher and I was doing research in voice over IP and I built a little SIP lab uh, at, at Bell Labs and I implemented the SIP protocol. I, I wrote like probably one of the first SIP servers, if not the first SIP server in the process of writing the spec. So, it, and it was my PhD thesis topic also. So it was this great alignment between, you know, my academic work, my day job and the standards work were basically all the same thing. And I did that for many years. So now that you can look back at this and see where the industry has gone with SIP, uh, do you feel that this was done right or was there parts that, that uh, should have been done differently? Oh yeah. So I'm actually my own worst critic with this. Oh, oh no, we, I'm your worst critic, really. No, I, 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 <laughs> true. Dave is everyone's worst critic. So just uh, take that into consideration. I know that's true. I do read his tweets. So I see that. Um, so, um, so, you know, one of the big things we really set out to do with SIP was just was to revolutionize the way people communicate with each other um, and to do something better than the stodgy old desk phone. Um, and a lot of the early work that I, you know, I worked on in the, was to do innovative new things and to leverage internet technologies. Um, and uh, I would say for the most part that had, has not panned out. If you look at what SIP has largely done, is it's largely been sort of the drop-in technology replacement for you know SS7 in the carrier networks and the PBX in the enterprise networks, uh, but largely not changing the user experience in any way. And, and on that regard, I, I feel it's been a failure, even though it's been a great success in terms of its deployment. And, and mostly what it did was it dramatically reduced the costs of building equipment that did telephony. Right? Well, I'd like to thank you for that because I spent a career at Acme Packet and Audio Codes and Dialogic. So my entire uh, life's income was due to um, the SIP standard. So thank you very much. The deficiencies of the SIP standard is, is what your income was based on. <laughs> you know, for, 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 a long, for a long time, the industry was going towards SIP phones. Um, now, you know, I was just at the, uh, the Broadsoft Connections event and, and they're, they're launching the new Cisco phones and, and, and doing, doing so with, with proprietary provisioning uh, as an added benefit. You know, Microsoft has gone toward more of a proprietary version of, of SIP and, and it, it, seems like the, it seems like we hit maximum or, or peak open SIP endpoint. Is that, is that a reasonable conclusion or is that incorrect, you think? Absolutely true. So, I mean, the... The area, from an interoperability perspective, I think it's been the most effective in sort of the server-to-server -server leg. And it's not without troubles there, right? But, but SIP trunking is another thing which SIP created as an entirely new market category. has been wildly successful. And again, you know, talking about Acme Packet is, you know, made, made a lot of money on sort of providing those kind of interfaces. So I think it's done reasonably well. It's become the lingua franca for server-to-server -server interconnect. On the client-to-server leg, because there's a lot more complexity, uh, that's where a lot of the end-user features manifest. and uh, and you have to deal with things like, as you just pointed out, provisioning, configuration, analytics, reporting, troubleshooting. Uh, none of those things are actually even remotely well standardized. Um, and so the vendors all had to fill in the blanks on those things. 
And when you combine that with just natural market forces have made sort of the phone SIP loads um, significantly proprietary. And so vendors like Broadsoft and Cisco and others have had to sort of define their own flavors of these things and build certification programs uh, to, to get their versions to work um, because there's still an ecosystem of phone vendors that's different from infrastructure providers and, and they rely on these uh, specifications and certifications. But, but it's definitely not been, um, not been a great success for that piece of the puzzle. Now, when I first met you, uh, it was when you first came to Cisco, and we were in the middle of another new emerging standard. It was WebRTC, and you were yeah. you were heavily involved in WebRTC. And there was yeah. this, at that time there was a big argument about should we go with uh, uh, existing codecs or the or the open codec? Uh, I forget I forget the names now. Two sixty four versus uh, VP eight or whatever it was. Um, and and we, the industry ended up going with both, which was kind of strange. Uh, it's so, a typical standards conclusion. Uh, <laughs> so so you've been through this twice now, and and so do you think you approached the WebRTC round differently because of your experience with SIP? And do you think the WebRTC played out the way it should have? Yeah. Great question. So um, one of the things, so I, I think we approached it pretty well, but we didn't go far enough. And in particular, what we're trying to do was to keep as many standards out of it as possible. I mean, what was sort of interesting about WebRTC is a, a, an application developer could do what they want and they didn't need to necessarily rely on, on established signaling protocols. WebRTC doesn't include SIP. It, 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 it purposefully avoids it. And I actually was one of the advocates for this in the early days was no SIP. We're going to minimize the amount of standards that are required because that allows for flexibility uh, and innovation. And that, that's one of the the big things I think, again, we fail at is what, what, what drove innovation around collaboration is the fact that a, a single entity, uh, a cloud vendor these days can build a server software, build some client software and operate the whole thing and make it all work without any sort of requirement to go to IETF for a new feature in their product. So we wanted to emulate that as much as possible. Now we still have to rely on standards for the media stack. So that's the, what's called SDP offer answer and then the whole codecs and RTP and SRTP and all these kind of things. Um, and that that's proven to be very difficult to standardize. So the codec wars was one big piece of that. And yep. there's active work now on how you do multi-streaming, which is really important for video conferencing. And that's not yet worked out. And there's arguments on rate control and forward error correction. And so there's still a lot of work to be done there. That again, requires sort of everyone to standardize on these things. There was a, if I could do it all over again, I would not do it this way, Dave. I would go back and do something more like a completely programmable framework that allowed you to just implement your own media stack in, you know, wh whether it's JavaScript or some kind of hmm. interpreted bytecode so that you had to standardize absolutely nothing, like nothing except for an execution environment for code that had uh, reasonably secure access to some kind of networking sockets. That's it. And if we had that, we would have actually, in my opinion, we would have gotten this thing out the door way faster and had much better, um, uh, adoption and, and uh, innovation cycle on those things. Well, that's interesting to learn. Um, we're, we're, we're almost there now, right? It took a lot longer than we thought, but WebRTC has more or less come to fruition. Uh, and I think part of it's because uh, Google won, right? I mean, we used to try to make every, you know, Apple and, and Microsoft and Google, everybody wanted their browsers to be compatible and there was, there was all these issues. But now that seems to like, it's like, Chrome won. So now that, now that everybody's just trying to make things work in Chrome, it seems to be a lot easier. 
Well, no, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd say that was directly related to WebRTC. It was a, it was a slow road to get here. Uh, it took way longer than we all thought it would. Um, and uh, but it but it works in all the modern browsers, right? So it works in Apple, works in Firefox. Uh, you know, it do, doesn't work in Internet Explorer, but it works in Edge. Yep. Um, and um, and it's seen some market uptake. But what I think it hasn't done is it hasn't been this industry changing, revolutionizing thing. If the goal was to, you know, make it possible for you to embed real time communications everywhere on the internet, to a large degree, I don't think it's it's done that yet. Right. Um, what it has done is it's provided a nice way for meetings products to, you know, have a no client solutions. There, if there is some implementation for like contact center use cases, we've seen some of that telemedicine, like some vertical use cases. But like, just if you go random collection of websites, and you know, you're not going to find WebRTC implemented everywhere. So, so Jonathan, what what is the big next big opportunity in your view? For the communication space, I mean, what are you thinking? Is is it bots? Is it some sort of AI-based collaboration and virtual assistants? I mean, what's on the top of your mind these days in terms of the next big thing? So I am completely convinced that the next big thing is machine learning, specifically speech recognition and natural language processing, as applied to the voice content of calls and meetings. Uh, and um, it'll be a long road of many years of improvements and capabilities and training data and use cases and so on and so forth. But if you think about it, um, you know, for the entire history of our industry, our technologies were about moving bits from point A to point B. Like we just got the voice, the video, and the content share from one computer or phone to another computer and phone, and that's it, right? And the content of that, what we say and what we you know, committed to and what we talked about and what we agreed on, what's, you know, what, what, how, how are we emotionally in the meeting? How do we react? Like that stuff's lost. It's almost this dark data. Right. And, um, and so the opportunity in the years ahead of us is to transition the technologies from moving the bits to understanding the bits and converting that to business value, actionable data. Um, and all kinds of great things are going to come out of that. So um, I'm, so convinced am I of that, that that's one of the criteria for my next job is I'm only going somewhere where I have the opportunity to work on this. And the good news is I think most folks see this as well. I'm not the only person who's talking about this, but, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm really convinced it's where things are going to go. Wow. So we're, at, we're actually breaking news here on the podcast. This is kind of exciting. I really want to know when we can replace Dave Michaels with a bot. I mean, that's my ultimate goal with the podcast, but that may be a couple of years away. Yeah. Well, that, that, well <laughs> I sometimes, again, watching his Twitter, I wonder. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so interestingly, too, I think it, you know, the, the sort of it's going to be about a bot that thinks that you, you know, you fool people into thinking it's a human being is, is actually largely not what I'm talking about. It's more uh, assisting and analyzing data. Uh, we're definitely, we're seeing this first in contact center. And I think contact center in general is sort of at the forefront of this revolution where the, where the business cases are, are most valuable. And you, you all saw, you know, Google announced a whole like, you know, contact center AI. And there it's about things like more intelligent call routing or providing suggested answers to agents um, you know, processing what people say and plugging it into CRM systems. This is this is the kind of thing where you're not like trying to fool the person calling, but you're augmenting it um, with some sort of 
as if someone was listening and taking notes. So sort of an assistant more than a bot is the way I would so does it take a company like does it take a company like Google with its resources and data set to to innovate here? Or are there startups can they can they make an, an impact in this emerging you know deep learning and uh, AI space? Uh, the way I, so the, the answer is no. You can you know you can make an impact uh, without being a Google, but you have to think about it in the right way, right? Um, and and the way I have to think about it is that companies like Google and, and Amazon and others are going to provide sort of tooling. Um, and they'll take the stuff that's commodity, that's the same for everyone, and they'll provide those things as capability. But then, you know, you will have the opportunity to differentiate it with your own data. Um, and the tools will get easier and easier for people to sort of build their own models for their own use cases with their own data without having to, you know, hire an army of PhDs. And certain things will be almost completely commodity. I think at the moment, at least, and there's some caveats which we can talk about, but at the moment, at least, like speech recognition is, is considered commodity, right? Um, you can take Google ASR and, you know, it gets pretty accurate results and sort of doesn't matter what you're talking about. And there's not a lot of differentiation or customization needed necessarily for that to work. Uh, natural language processing, not so much the case. And that's actually sort of the harder part of it, if you think about it. Um, so I think that's the area where you'll see companies innovating is using these tools uh, as commodity and then using their own data to understand what is the semantic content of a conversation in a, in a conversation that is a general purpose meeting versus a sales call versus a uh, interview versus a, a scrum readout versus a um, customer support call. Like these are all very different with different types of language and content that each of those can be customized with uh, within their own natural language. I'm surprised you're so excited about natural language because um, uh, so much of what you've been working on in the past, and I guess, you know, you don't get to choose what you've been working on necessarily, uh, has been around security and encryption and and hybrid models of security. Uh, I, I, I thought for sure you would either, well, I, I figured you'd either be heading toward toward security or you'd be heading toward crypto. Um, and I know you have a love-hate relationship with crypto. You love to hate it, but um, uh, so so so. What what about what, you think security is boring now? I mean, you you were so passionate about it. No, no, no. I, listen, I, I you know, there's lots of things I'm excited about. Um, but uh, um, you know, the ML. You, you asked me the question like, what I think is the big next frontier, right? Um, and that these are what I talked about is largely unsolved problems, like right? things that have yet to be brought to market or figured out. Not that security is solved, but it's at a different level of maturity for sure in this area. Um, so I, you know, I remain a, a big believer, uh, of course, in in content encryption and security. And uh, you know, a lot of what I, I did when I was at Cisco was, wasn't just because I was receiving a paycheck. Like I, you know, I believe these things, right? And I and uh, and I do think we we are going to have in the future an event where one of the big guys has a big data breach and enterprise data is is divulged you know so far if you look at the but bigger than the facebook breach yeah but you know well maybe not bigger and bigger in terms of users maybe not but if you think about the type of data so far we've been dealing with sort of consumer pii right we haven't yet seen a compromise of confidential corporate information which leads to corporate espionage or some kind of like you know company stock price implodes because some secrets were revealed well, we had that Sony Films thing when uh, when they uh, 
uh, and they stole the internal emails and stuff like that, and they stole the movies. But and that was and, and they barely recovered from that, honestly. But but yeah, I I think about yeah if if a company's private email server was made public yeah. or 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 their intellectual property, of course, became public. Uh, these may not be things yeah. you could recover from. And to me, the, the juiciest target on the planet is Microsoft. I, I mean, I, I've used this analogy of, of, you know, listen, everyone's moving to Office 365 apparently, and every company is putting their email and their documents into Microsoft's data centers. And so if you think about it, the analogy is imagine every bank in the world decided that they're not going to have their own safety deposit vaults anymore. They're going to be one giant vault in the world. And they're going to guard it with like, you know, machine guys with machine guns and barbed wire fences. But like, if you're a bad guy, how much money would you spend to break into the one vault in the world that has all of the world's money? And the answer is like a lot. Like I would go dig a tunnel from two miles away and it would take me a year, but like yeah. it would, the payoff would be there. So it, it almost feels like the economic incentives are so large that it's merely a matter of time before we see some kind of massive data breach from one of these uh, providers. And I, and I think that'll be a, that'll be a, It'll be a moment in our industry when people start to take a pause on this whole thing. Is, is that moment going to happen? And you know, we're almost done with 2018. Is it going to happen in 2018? Is it going to happen in 2019? I I don't know. I think it'll like all things. It'll sort of depend on market uptake. And it, when enough of the market has moved towards Office 365 in particular, and I'm picking on them because they're the juicy target. And they're not the only one. But um, when the market has significantly moved over there, so that there's like a serious uh, data to be had many years worth, um, that's when you'll do it. So that might not be 2019, actually, uh, but a little farther out when it gets more juicier with more historical data. So, so do you get, as a security professional, uh, when you have to deal with really crappy security at, a, at your bank or you know, whatever website you go to, uh, what's the likelihood that you will bring this to their attention? I mean, I, I, I struggle with this, and I'm not, I'm not a security expert myself, but, but I, I just get so upset when, you know, when they ask me to verbally tell, me, tell them the password or something. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? You know, I, I, how well do you react to uh, stupid security? Oh, I, I'm a complainer. So, like, for example, I went to visit a, a bank's website. I forget what it was, and they, they did not have – it wasn't secure. <laughs> there was no, you know, padlock. I mean, basic 101, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I tweeted about it, uh, by the way. So, you know, I, I, uh, I definitely do little things. Uh, my tweets don't move, uh, move worlds like your, guy, your guys' tweets do. But, uh, well, that's all that you're talking about. But, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, your, your tweets, uh, when I retweet you, they, they move uh, worlds. But, um, <laughs> but, but I am curious, what, what, where are we going with personal security? Any tips or tricks that you recommend? I had to just, for example had a friend whose uh, account, uh, Gmail account was broken into and they managed to uh, catch her uh, two-factor login on her phone and redirect it. So it was a very sophisticated wow. attack. Are, are these attacks going to be more commonplace? I mean, she was an accountant, so not exactly a, uh, you know, some sort of world leader uh, uh, who was compromised. But are we going to see more sophistication and AI being brought in as part of uh, phishing and, and uh, machine learning based attacks? Without a doubt. And of course, social engineering will remain the primary vehicle, in my view, for a lot of these things. And that, that's incredibly hard to protect against. Um, you know, my, as for the, you know, my own personal recommendations, like for the average Joe, 
they're, they're sort of obvious things, like don't use the same password on multiple sites. Um, you know, if you have trouble remembering your passwords, use a password manager. Um, they're they're going to be better. They're, they have some, you know, they, they're not without challenges in terms of security vulnerabilities themselves, but so far probably a way better choice than nearly anything else. Um, the other thing I find myself doing is I'm not, I'm not storing credit cards anymore in, at websites. I'd rather, you know what? I will just re-enter it every single time. That's you know, I've taken the opposite stance on that, but uh, have you? Uh, because because I feel like credit cards have so much protection. Yeah. You know, so so if somebody steals my credit card, all I got to do is call the credit card company up and say it's it's not my it's not my charge, and so I go for the convenience on credit cards. But but with other accounts. I've, I've gotten, you know, I don't, I don't use my financial uh, accounts. I don't put those in my password manager. I keep those out. Well, Dave has a large stash of gold buried uh, up in the hills and around Boulder. So for, for, that's actually a really great tactic. You know, I was really disappointed. It turns out bouillon is soup. I was so disappointed. Oh, <laughs> a different type of like, you know, cube. Uh, do, like do you use uh, those Yuba keys, Jonathan? You, you have one of those? Yeah, no, I don't have one of those. Nope. Because um, uh, Google made that claim back in July that uh, they've they've stopped all fraud with uh, you, by by forcing all employees to use YubiKeys. Yeah, but they're not they're not widely used at, uh, at websites yet at this point. I, I think you know the sort of the advantage of the password managers is they work day one with 100% websites, yeah. right? And and at least they force behaviors like better password selection and and having a dis- the biggest thing in my opinion is a distinct password per site. I mean that, that's sort of an you know, they, they make it easy to do that. Um, so uh, not as good as the YubiKey. One day we'll get there with the YubiKeys. So Jonathan, where, where can we find you in the next few weeks and months? Are there any events you're looking forward to, speaking engagements, uh, books coming out, other events maybe at MIT here in uh, Cambridge? What, what, uh, what can we expect? Well, the highlight, of course, was this podcast, so I'm surprised you had to ask. But uh, besides that, <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm giving a keynote at uh, SIPNOC, which is the SIP Network Operators Conference. Uh, oh, SIP will never take off. That's a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I heard that for a long time, actually. Not so much lately. But uh, that's going to be in uh, early December in, uh, in Washington, Dallas. There's a, a day-long robocalling uh, workshop that I'll, I'll be attending. Um, and uh, uh, so that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, there'll be some articles here and there coming out too, so I, I can't say much, but uh, stay tuned. Uh, and that's, that's yeah. probably about it. Uh, I'm, I'm spending most of my time trying to find a new job, guys. You know. <laughs> oh. Why? 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 Um, uh, do you have a solution for robocalling? Well, funny you should ask. Um, I have some ideas. Um, and, uh, I'm sort of waiting to land my next gig is almost certainly wherever I land will help me execute some of these things. But, uh, but I do have, I am working a plan. Yes. I feel personal accountability for the robocalling problem. Like if you made a list of the top 20 people in the world who were responsible for causing this, this plague, I'm not in the top 10, but I'm, I might be in the top 20 because what did SIP do? It made it super cheap to initiate calls into the telephone network, and it had no protection against unauthenticated caller ID or uh, caller ID spoofing, which is the real plague that that you know is the root cause of all this stuff. Um, Colin and I actually worked on a proposal to increase the cost using crypto, since you uh, brought it up earlier. So I proposed this thing called SIPCoin, and I wrote a new crypto, designed a new cryptocurrency um, 
that was uh, meant to be attached to SIP calls. This, this, is, this is, as I recall, just a few months after you told me you hate crypto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I believe that's right, yes. So what do you think, what, what do you think Jonathan, of Facebook's and Google's foray into the enterprise communications space? Do you think it's uh, a toe in the water or end, to end in misery, or do you think they really have an opportunity to make a difference there? That's a great question. Um, and so I feel there's potential, but it's yet unrealized. And it actually sort of makes me wonder whether it's, you know, there, there's a DNA aspect to it too, right? I mean, you have to, it takes a huge amount of machinery that have nothing to do with the technology to successfully sell to large enterprise, right? Uh, and certainly if you look at Cisco, which is, which is just the best at this, right? One of the best at this. It's massive sales forces and support organizations and customer success teams and, you know, account managers and teams with years of history with the customer and, you know, just and products that are catered to, you know, the kind of needs that exist up and down the chain. It's just, it's just a lot of that, you know, there's almost there's sort of this misperception that, oh, just because you can run it in an enterprise because it's a web app that does not mean that it's an enterprise wide product that can actually be successful at scale. Now, this changes as you go down market and it's a very fuzzy line, by the way, and the line itself is moving, right? So increasingly, I think they, you know, you can go more and more off market with these products. But, but I think if you go in the large enterprise, all of the Fortune 1000, I think for the most part, you find extremely limited success uh, from the likes of um, Google and, and uh, Facebook in these products. There are some exceptions, of course, but, um, but I think they struggle there, whereas they do much better on the small size, where it is, it is effectively a consumer product. Uh, Facebook, I worry about, especially these days, they're under such yes. scrutiny. I mean, I feel like... Bad timing, huh? Oh, my gosh. I, I, almost like it's, it's, it's an in thing to hate on Facebook these days. I think, even think it's maybe a little, a little bit over the line. Like, come on, guys. It's not. But, uh, but there, you know, if you're an enterprise IT guy, I think, and you're making a decision to go with Facebook these days, you're going to get some scrutiny. It's no longer a safe or obvious decision, and I think that's going to probably hurt them. Yeah, there's there's a there's a technical fit. You know, Facebook has a very good technical fit to adapt their solution to an enterprise. But then there's that marketing fit. And I remember when KFC tried to launch uh, fried fish, fish and chips, yeah. and and the the public just wouldn't accept it. Right? You know, the, they had all the right equipment. They they know how to fry things. They're really good at it. But uh, the the marketing fit just wasn't there. It's like yeah. no. Uh, uh, and so yeah, Facebook's got a big uh, big hurdle clear. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's wrap this up. I got to ask you the, the obligatory personal question. And uh, if you've heard of any other podcasts, maybe you've prepared. But uh, what is your next big personal spend? I enjoy spending my money on fine dining. I'm not a thing collector for the most part. So um, wow, that's a I, that's a great answer. I, uh, I like uh, food experiences, so uh, I don't know which one it is going to be yet, but uh, getting out to French Laundry or, or Noma are, are very high on my list of uh, need to do really soon. Do you enjoy the fine dining in the uh, New Jersey, New York area, or do you, you prefer to go for fine dining when you're traveling? Yeah, well, uh, so I'm what they call a Michelin diner, right, which is I, I go try and collect stars, like have, you know, dine at these Michelin-rated restaurants. Now, only properly three cities in, in the U.S. Are, are even rated for Michelin stars. So you, you go there, right? It's New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. Uh, and so I've done the most in San Francisco just because of my travel 
Um, and but uh, but I've you know New York for me is is just a, a driver on the corner, and uh, I try as much as I can. But you know I don't bring my my kids there, and and it's a little harder to get away. Uh, when I'm not traveling. So I've done less interestingly in New York, even though it's around the corner for me. Yeah, of course. That's always the case. Come on, Jonathan, you know, chowder and, uh, and some nice fish up in Boston is uh, where it's at. Come on. Eh, I have to say, you know, I went to school there for four years. The pizza was just atrocious. The bagels were an embarrassment to the name. Uh, it's bad. The other interesting tidbit for you, since we're talking about history of sip, uh, my fine dining and love for wine is largely due to sip which is, of course, unsurprising. It started out when I was going to ITF meetings, which were all over the world. Um, we would have like a SIP planning dinner that was largely myself and my two biggest partners in crime in the whole SIP thing, which are Cullen Jennings and John Peterson. So gradually, we would go more and more upscale, better and better wine, better and better food. And that's how I got into both wine and fine dining. So, so your involvement in SIP has been uh, fulfilling and enriching. That's that's. Uh... That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking some time with us, Jonathan. And uh, uh, we wish you the best of luck in your future pursuits. And uh, we hope to keep in touch. Absolutely. You know, we will. All right. Take care, everyone. You want some information, some kind of conversation.